0: Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on July 13th, 2014. Today's message is titled, True Value, by Dr. Lyle Schrag, and is based on Scripture, Psalm 8. Can I ask you to pray with me, please? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together in this place, we we recognize that you do carry a name that overarches the heavens and the earth and, and yet, Lord, we come together in a reality that touches into the very depths of our lives. I pray that we might be able to appreciate the richness of a relationship that is in you. Out of all of creation, Lord, we are the ones given that special privilege of calling you Father. I pray that, Lord, you would help us find a a sense of confidence and assurance and comfort and whatever it is, a sense of bearing that would take us into the rest of our lives so that we would be what you have intended us to be from the very beginning, the men and women of God. This I pray in the powerful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who has made us the children of God. Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to return your Bibles now as we're going to be going through uh, this summer series and a a look in the book of Psalms. We're going to take a little bit of a closer look in the 8th Psalm, uh, Psalm number 8, and it's a wonderful Psalm. I won't read it for you again. It's a very simple Psalm of praise. It's nine verses. It's easy to read. In fact, as I was uh, reading it this week uh, a number of times, I, I decided I would time it. It takes approximately 30 to 35 seconds to read it. It takes me a little bit shorter because I come from Chicago, and you've got to put words in quickly if you're going to be able to get if you understand what I'm saying. That was one of the funny things about coming to Canada when I was first uh, coming from Chicago. Uh, people asked me if there was a difference in being in Canada, and I thought, no, really isn't, there isn't, and In Canada, when you see somebody in the morning, you say, how are you doing, eh? In Chicago, you just say, hey, how you doing? And, you know, it's just a a little bit of a shift in that. But in any case, as I was sitting and reading through the psalm and realized it was only 30 to 35 seconds, uh, I began to realize, well, you might be tempted in the reading of the psalms just to read it and then move on. 30 to 35 seconds, you've done your devotion, you've read your Bible for the day, but the fact is, when you read a psalm like this, if you read any of the psalms, and this is why the tradition of reading psalms every day is so profound, what it does is it opens the door to a whole season of reflection. It may just be nine verses, but the drama that is written in these nine verses deserves an entire season of reflection. Because you see, psalms were in fact written for that very purpose. If you take a a closer look at Psalm 8, if you open your Bibles and look at Psalm 8, you will see that it has an introduction. And there the introduction reads this. For the director of music, according to the githith, a psalm of David. A gitteth. Do you know what a gitteth is? As far as we can tell, uh, the word had a relationship with an ancient musical instrument which was made up of wood, and had a sound box, which was shaped like a wine press or a githa, and had a hole in it. And then also had a wooden neck, six strings that were cut across that hole, and that you strummed on the strings and pressed on them in different ways so that they would make different sounds. Does that sound familiar to anyone? A githa, we know it today as a guitar, the precursor of the guitar. And in David's day, there, there, it was an instrument that was associated with personal reflection. And it was played at times when you were seeking to reach deep into your heart and then capture your innermost meditations. You may remember how last week I I, I said that in the 60s, Ray Stedman wrote his commentary on the book of Psalms that I enjoy so much, but he called it the folk songs of the faith. Well, put the guitar into it and you really can see it as like a folk song. A, a chance of, of, of pulling out the guitar and then writing out songs that will get people thinking and reflecting and maybe at the very end doing some praising as well. And so we have, 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 a, have a song here. And right away, you will notice there's something very interesting about Psalm 8. If you look at verse 1, you will recognize that it's the very same verse as verse 9. It opens and closes with the same statement, both of the same, in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in verse 9, we have O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The words are the same. But in reflecting on the journey of thought that goes from verse 1 then down through uh, verses 2 through 8 you begin to realize that the words may be the same, but there is a world of difference in the way in which they are spoken. Now, to explain that, uh, I've asked Pastor Isaac to, and I guess you're going to have to come up here. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but you're going to have to come up here to share the microphone. I, I, I've i asked him to help me be able to explain how this might work. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, uh, I gave I wrote down that little sentence uh on a piece of paper, and I gave it to you. Do you have the piece of paper? Oh, you know what the question Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it's now become a matter of meditation. So I wrote down a little sentence, gave it on a piece of paper. It's not quite as in, you know, uh, the, the, a scriptural verse, but could you just tell the congregation what that sentence was? This is really important to me. Okay, very simple statement. This is really important to me. Okay, now, that's not quite as inspirational as, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, but I want you to work with me, okay? Now, what I want you to do is read it in your own words as if you were trying to convince me to do something for you. Lyle, this is really important to me. Passion. <laughs> okay, the drama is building here. Okay, uh, uh, now I want you to say it to me again, as if you were angry with me and you wanted to make a point. Watch your ears. Lyle, this is really important to me. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> maybe we can talk about this later. Right? Uh, okay. Now, are you catching the difference? Same words but carrying different meanings. Now I'm going to ask you to do it one more time and uh, and I want you to t- say that sentence as if you really appreciate me and you want to give me a gift. Lyle, yes. this is really important to me. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. and you have given me a gift for Isaac. Yeah. All right. Pastor Isaac. Okay, now, can you see the difference between those things? It's one simple sentence, but it carries several different meanings. And in the course of conversation, we find ourselves adding tones to our words, and while we do a diligent job in biblical translation and getting the the words of the psalm right, we would probably do well to listen carefully to the voice that carries the context and frames these words as we read in, in, the, in, in the Psalms. And here, what we have is one verse with the same words at either end of the Psalms, but they are divided right down the middle with a process of reflection, which I, I would suggest to you changes the voice as you would hear it. it. begins with a verse that makes all the difference that stands right in the middle of them too. That verse that makes all the difference in the tone between verse 1 and verse 9 is been found in verse 4. And it is framed as the core question that would demand your most intense reflection if you are ever going to find your way in life. It's a question that we all need to resolve, and it's found there in verse 4, and it says this. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him, the son of man that you would care for him? Now, a short order of this sermon is very simple. Working from that question in verse 4 backwards, the sound of tone in that question in verse 1 might carry with it a hint of despair. What is man that you would be mindful of him. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic are you in all the earth. But working then from verse 4 down to the very end, we are given substantial reasons to change our voice and be able to say, Oh, Lord, my Lord, how majestic are you. And we're going to follow that journey as we go through it today. It's a journey, by the way, that you will find with that question throughout the Bible. It was a transitional question that was sounded in both of those voices as well. One that carries the sound of despair, Job, asked that question in Job chapter 7, verse 17. If you all understand what was happening with Job, as his life was dissolving around him, as the pain was increasing, he asked that question in Job chapter 7, verse 17, what is man, or let's make it more personal, who am I that you, God, would ever be concerned about me? As he found himself being destroyed given the context of what was happening to him, you can easily expect to hear him ask that question with a note of despair. What am I? Especially in comparison with the majesty of God, what am I? Not very much, it would seem. But on the other hand, you also find that question repeated in the Bible with a completely different voice in Hebrews chapter 2 and that what makes the difference in the voice is Jesus Christ. And the, and the question rings out with a sound of wonder and awe. What is man, or better, what am I because of Jesus Christ? And so you have despair or you have wonder, all hinging on verse 4. And Psalm 8 connects the two together, and by the end leaves us with that place of wonder and a voice of praise. So put your finger on verse 4 as we work backwards and then we work our way forwards. Working backwards to verse 1, let me add some emphasis to the reading. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now I realize that I'm implying a sense of imagination here, but indulge me as you look at verse 1. The way verse 1 just reads, it focuses on God and His majesty overarching all of the earth. And in verse 2, God ex- exercising supreme authority over all of created things, infants and enemies. In fact, it may appear to you that it's even more than just an exercise of authority. It might, in fact, come across as something of an imposition. He is ordaining things. I mean, just read the verse, too. It says, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you, God, have, and as the NIV translates, you have ordained praise. You've imposed upon it. And ask yourself the question, how is it that humans start out from in infancy sensing or knowing God? Is it something they can choose? Or is it a matter of the will? Or is it just some sort of forced instinct, some God, something that God has ordained in an in internal wiring that is imposed on some if not all? Follow the news and you will hear how scientists today have sought to come up with an answer for that question. Just in the last year, they've talked about having discovered a God gene that would explain why some people are religious and other people are not. That there's something in the wiring of our creation that would explain this sense of understanding or knowing or sensing God. Whatever the case, the emphasis in verse 1 reveals a God who is great and majestic and much, much bigger than anything on earth, including anyone on earth, and that means you and me. If you carry that thought into verse 3, more questions arise. There we see how a great God is not only larger than the earth around us, but is larger than the heavens above us and beyond the moon and the stars. And from that far away, it's no surprise that a question is then asked, what is man that you are mindful of? God is so great, so immense, that the, the moon and the stars are just finger play to him. How is it even conceivable that he would have any idea of who I am and why would he even care? What I am, what, what is it about me that, that God would cause God to even give a nanosecond of second thoughts? Notice the word that is used here. It's the word what rather than who. What is man? I don't want to make too much of the matter of grammar but as we're strumming the mental guitar here, I have to consider how the conventional answers to that question have been raised and maybe taken to heart by, by some when it comes to defining what it means to be human. Answering that question of how we actually see ourselves. Years ago, in the Journal of the American Scientific Affiliation, Dr. Vernon Grounds listed the philosophic options that, that in our culture that, that are used to define us, you and me. It's under that question of what is man? There are some who would say that human beings are just machines, biological instruments. And as an example, he he brought out Buckminster Fuller, who pictured man in this way. Listen to the definition that was given. Man is a self-balancing 28 jointed, adapter-based biped, an electrochemical reduction plant integral with the segregated storages of special uh, energy extracts and storage batteries for the subsequent actuation of thousands of hydraulic and pneumatic pumps with motors attached, 62,000 miles of capillaries, millions of warning signals, conveyor systems, crushers and cranes, and a universally distributed internet system uh, needing no service for 70 years if well managed, and the whole extraordinary complex complex mechanism guided with exquisite precision from a turret from which are located telescopic and microscopic self-registering and recording rangefinders and (laughs) spectrometers. He goes on, but I'm going to stop right there. You get that sort of picture? That man is just a machine? A piece of material, a cog in the system? Reduced to that and nothing more? Is that how you see yourself whenever you ask the question, what am I, what is man? I love, (laughs) uh, this is a little aside, when Harvey Brett of the New York Times uh, had a chance to interview J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings in 1955, he asked him the question, he said, what makes you tick? And Tolkien looked at him with that kind of quizzical sort of way, and he says, I don't tick, I'm not a machine. A machine is one option that we have before us where we cause ourselves to think we are just mechanically walking and motoring our way through life. And an animal, it was another one that was brought up uh, by Dr. Grounds. And at that point, he, he gave out this illustration. The philosopher Robert Fitch put it this way, man is a beast. The only difference between man and other beasts is that man is a beast who knows he will die. And the only honest man is the unabashed egoist who pours out contempt upon the hypocrisy of those who will acknowledge the one irreducible value of life for which, uh, you, uh, which you use for the pursuit of pleasure, power, sex, and money. The great passions of the human comedy, lecture, le- lechery, addiction, greed, brutality, are not tragedy because man does not have the dignity of tragedy because man is a beast. That and nothing more. We see our society defining humans that way. We see our society looking at children. When we talk about abstinence and they say, you can't stop them, they're animals. They're going to do it anyhow. You understand the great insult behind something like that? So the options are there. You're either a machine or you're a beast. Well, there's another option but the effects are still the same lauren isley a distinguished scientist wrote in the encyclopaedia of he said what is man he is a cosmic orphan a primate which is involved into a self-conscious reflective symbol using animal a cosmic orphan a person aware that he has been produced unawares and unintentionally by some impersonal process what answer defines you a machine An animal? An orphan? Whatever, the answer ends up making man a thing or a what, not a being or a who. Oh, God may be great and majestic, overarching the heavens and the earth, and whatever it is to be found in the heavens and the earth, he is over all, but where does that leave me? Am I just that? An animal, a piece of the machine? a cosmic orphan, where does that leave you? Well, it takes us right to verse 4. What is man that thou, God, art mindful of him, the son of man that thou dost care for him? Care for him. Care for him. The psalm continues, and when it does, a whole other definition is revealed is revealed, and an option only a God who is majestic in his greatness and his goodness could create. And what he creates turns a what into a who, and that who is you. Does that sound like Dr. Zeus? Let me say it again. His definition takes a what, turns it into a who, and that who is you. In verse 5, you, God, God, that is. You. Made him. Let's make this personal. Made me. Made you. Made me. A little lower than the heavenly beings. Now let me pause for a moment. To become a who, something has to happen. And the psalm reveals exactly what it is. Don't overlook the word made. When God created man, he breathed life in him and made him a who and not a what and god created you keep your finger on verse 5 and look back for a moment to verse 4 where we are all too human just a son of man here in verse 5 the truth is is revealed you are not just a son of man you are god's creation really <laughs> you may wonder well, look at me god's creation you got to be doing it. He couldn't do any better than this. I mean, I've just been looking at the moon and the stars, and they are beautiful things that God has made, and you expect me to believe that God made this? God not only made it, he loves it, and he cares for it, according to the Scriptures. I love the impact of verse 5, especially in light of how verse 5 appears in the book of Hebrews. We may appear to be a little lower than the heavenly beings, but we are the ones God chose to wear the crown of glory, not the heavenly beings. And the appearances of creation may be deceiving. We may not sparkle like the stars, but God has made us capable of wearing a crown. Now, some of you may have the word heavenly beings in your Uh, translation of of Psalm 8, uh, translated as angels in your Bible, which indicate that we're talking about something more than just the heavenly things like moons and stars, but even more we're talking about supernatural and utterly fabulous beings called angels and compared to them, well it's no contest, I can never be compared to an angel, who am I then that God would be mindful of me? This verse appears again in Hebrews chapter 2 where God then sets the record straight, Through Jesus Christ. After quoting this verse in verse 7, we find that Jesus chose to have a special relationship with us and not them. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children, those created and made by God, that's you and me, share in the flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise shared in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, that's you and me, who might be tempted to think of ourselves as animals, machines, or cosmic orphans. In verse 13, so that before god as we stand with jesus christ we would hear jesus say behold i and the children god has given me and now the money quote in hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 surely it is not angels that he jesus helps but the offspring of abraham god's children And here is where that crown of glory and honor appears. You see, while angels live and breathe in the eternal presence of God, they will never, ever know what it means to be a child of God. They are able to sing His praise. They are able to name all of His attributes but one. They can call Him heavenly and majestic, but they do not have the privilege of calling Him Father. That is a privilege that is reserved for those who belong to Jesus Christ. A privilege that only you, a son or a daughter of God who belongs to him. A gift that is given by grace. And as the old poem puts it, when the angels hear us pray, saying, Father, they can only bow their heads in wonder. For it is something they will never know. That is how a what becomes a who. And so the question is, who are you? In the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus made a standing invitation. He said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I like that. All who labor, some of you are going through life like a lifeless machine, wondering, is this all I'm really about? All who are heavy laden, some of you are going through life like a mindless beast of burden, an animal, wondering, is this all I'm really about? Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you life. I will give you meaning. For you are, through me, become God's child. Take that thought back to Psalm 8. Having been made by God, life is lived on a higher plane where man is so much more, a ruler, an overseer, one who leads flocks and herds and beasts and birds and the the fish that that swim in in the paths of the seas. What is man that you would mindful him? He is the one who has called us to be partners with him. Who are you that God would care? You are so much more than you could ever imagine. Some of you may remember a couple of weeks ago, or maybe about a month ago, I I gave this quote from C.S. Lewis that was found in The Weight of Glory. It's a passage that I love to carry into this reflection. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship, or a horror and a corruption such as you only meet now if only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one of those destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, knowing that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And because of Jesus Christ, you have had the privilege of talking to a child of God. And as we're gathered here together this morning, I am fully aware that based upon the authority of God's word, I am not talking to mere mortals here. I am talking to you, the treasured people of God. And given what Isaac and I did earlier, God is saying this is really important to him. And it is really important to me as well. The only thing I don't know is which direction you may have necessarily chosen to go. I can only pray that you find that voice here at the end of the psalm and then make it a sound of commitment with a sound of confidence, with a sound of praise, a voice that is made complete through Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and how majestic is your name over all my life. Would you make that your prayer together with me? To simply bow your head and be able to say it. O Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now how majestic shall your name be in all of my life. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name and do so through Jesus Christ who is our Lord, your Son, our Lord, the one who has made us whole. This we pray in his name. Amen.